Hey everyone, welcome to episode four of the Evan Lamb Show. Welcome back. It's been a while. It's been、uh, two weeks because last week was Chinese New Year holiday, Year of the Tiger. Hope you all had a great celebration for that. If you do celebrate it,、um, maybe some of you had dinner New Year's Eve. I had dinner New Year's Eve with my family, and、um, we we watched.、Uh, We had good food. We had fish. We had、um, pork. We had, I think it's called rice cake in English. And most of the time, we spent watching a、uh, show from Taiwan. I think it's called Red White. It's basically a competition between the red team and the white team, and they consisted of different celebrities and singers. And so they, f- for different rounds, they have different people singing. Representing each team, and then they also had like silly competitions, like like a Nintendo Switch、uh, Mario Party、uh, competition. They had、um, a dumpling, like making dumplings competition. So it was a pretty fun. It was a pretty fun TV show to watch. I think it was、um, Taiwan Television's 60th anniversary as well. So they had segments where they showed some of the biggest. Shows and dramas from Taiwan over like the past sixty years, so it was pretty nice. But hopefully, you all had a good holiday as well. I know if you know in certain countries, you might have had the entire week off. Hope you had a nice break and a time of rest from that. But yeah, welcome back to episode four. Today's episode, we are going to talk mainly about the Beijing Olympics because the Olympics officially started last Friday with their opening ceremony, but Some events, including curling, hockey, and team figure skating, started a couple days before. So I think yeah, some events started Wednesday, the Wednesday before the opening ceremony. But it is officially day、uh, I don't know three or four of the Olympics.、Um, so yeah, we're going to be talking about the Beijing Olympics.、Um, basically. You know the first part of this episode. I'm just gonna give an overview about what's been, you know, sort of the setup that they have over there. It's pretty interesting.、Um, and then after the break, we're gonna talk a little bit about how the reaction has been, the、uh, inevitable political conversations about this Olympic ceremony,、um, and about the entire Olympics and, and about China in general. So usually, I know this show is focused on、uh, Taiwan, but today. We're gonna talk a little bit more about the rest of the world and mainland China. But you know, as usual, I'll give a quick news update on what's been happening in Taiwan. It's been relatively quiet over the Chinese New Year holiday. Not much has come out、uh, except for new COVID case numbers every day.、And、it's been a pretty big fluctuation in terms of local new cases. So the the newest numbers for today are two. Local new、uh, two local COVID cases and then forty seven cases from people who flew into Taiwan.、Uh, but on February sixth it was fourteen local cases. On February fifth it was forty. On February fourth it was twenty five. So it's fluctuating. But today it was just two. Maybe it was because of the weekend or something. I don't know. But COVID news has been the most constant news over the Chinese New Year holiday.、Um, also. One of the Chinese Taipei、uh, athletes, she was the one who held the Chinese Taipei flag during the opening ceremony. She caused a bit of a controversy because she posted a photo on her Instagram of her wearing 
mainland China's team uniform. She does, uh, I think, the 1,000 meter um, women's freestyle. Uh, no, sorry, 1,000 meter women's speed skating. Let me check. Oh, one women's 1,500 meter speed skating. Um, so she ended up, she ended up getting 26th place. But yeah, she caused a lot of controversy. Uh, a lot of people in Taiwan are pretty pretty mad uh, at that photo, and it, it wasn't just her like wearing the mainland Chinese uniform, but it was also in her Instagram caption. She put um, like the mainland Chinese flag, the five star flag, uh, and then hashtag Beijing or something like that. And you know that's just I don't know why you would do that. Uh, it's just very not smart because you're going to represent you know Chinese Taipei. The Republic of China, Taiwan, in these competitions, you know, the government's funding your training and your practice and all of that. You're wearing the Chinese Taipei, the Chinese Taipei Olympic Committee emblem to the competition, and you know the relationship between Taiwan and mainland China is not simple. You know, it's very complicated in many ways. Their the relationship is at an all time low. It has been over the past twenty years. Um, it's just very very sensitive to wear if you're an athlete from Taiwan to wear. You know any uniform or hold a flag from of of the mainland China in 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 an event where you're representing your country. So you know it's not the same as if she decided to wear the uniform from the United States or from Canada or from the UK or something like that. You know the relationship is just not the same. I think you sort of get what I'm saying if you've been listening for the past couple episodes. But yeah, anyways, that was another big news. Uh. Another big event that I think people are anticipating is that um, the government in uh, you know Taiwan, the president, she's going to open up uh, imports of radioactively laced food products from Fukushima Island. So I'm not sure if I mentioned that on the on this podcast before, but Taiwan had the strictest, the most strict uh, regulations on you know radioactive food from Fukushima after their nuclear disaster but because you know the TPP government they want to I guess I don't know what their official reason is I guess they want to join CPTPP or they want to somehow get closer to the Japanese government they're they, they're, they're planning to lift restrictions on these uh, food products just like they lifted restrictions on pork with ractopamine. Uh so you know We'll see how this develops uh, over the next week or two, but yeah, these are the main 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 highlights from the news. Um, but yeah, we'll be talking. We'll be getting right into the Beijing Olympics. So I don't know if you have been watching the Beijing Olympics, but uh, if you've been watching the news and the coverage, you'll likely know that um, there are main three main zones. So there's the Beijing zone, which um, has which is basically the same area. That China hosted the 2008 Olympics, so a lot of、uh, existing stadiums that were used in 2008 that are being reused in 2022. So the Beijing Zone is located in the central part of Beijing City. So there's the National Stadium, which we call the Bird's Nest. It was used for track and field events back in 2008, but、uh, this year it's being used for opening and closing ceremonies. No actual competitions being held in that area. And then there's the National Aquatic Center, which is like the big water cube, but I think it's nicknamed the Ice Cube now because、um, it's used for curling.、Uh, it was used for swimming, diving, and synchronized swimming before in 
And then the National Indoor Stadium, which is uh, nicknamed the Fan. It was used for rhythmic gymnastics, trampoline, handball, and it is being used for ice hockey. Only new, completely new venue in Beijing's uh, Olympic Park is the National Speed Skating Oval, which was built on the site of the green hockey field, or the, the hockey field and the archery field in 2008, uh, and it is now used for speed skating. And then another building I want to talk about was the Big Air Building, which is the first permanent venue for Big Air in the world. It's built on a former steel mill site. So if you watch any of the Big Air events, you'll see like the steel mill chimneys like right next to this structure. And then another thing is the Beijing Olympic Village. Um, so that has housing for 2,300 beds for athletes and different officials, and it'll become public housing open for rent. The second main zone in the Olympics is the Yanqing Zone, it is about 47 miles northwest of Beijing city center, but it is considered a Beijing suburb. It has like hot springs, national parks, ski resorts, and one of the most visited sections of the Great Wall of China, the Badaling section. So usually if you visit the Great Wall of China, you'll go to Beijing, you'll go to this place, and then that's where you get on the big wall. The Yanqing zone is mainly for alpine skiing events and bobsled, uh, skeleton, and luge events um, and then also the Yanqing zone also has their own olympic village the national sliding center there is the first sliding track in china and it's the third in asia and that the third main area that a lot of the events are held at i think like majority is uh, zhangjiakou which is a popular chinese ski destination about 120 uh, 112 miles northwest of beijing and so there would be freestyle uh, cross-country ski jumping, Nordic combined, and biathlon held there. Um, one of the main buildings that I think you will see in the coverage in the in the in the Olympic coverage is the National Ski Jumping Center, which is where the ski jumping and the Nordic combined is. Um, that building is actually really nice. Like if you look at it, it's 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 pretty cool because it re resembles a traditional Chinese ruyi. A Rui is like a ceremonial scepter that represents power and good fortune. And so if you look up pictures of a Rui, and then you look at that, the National Ski Jumping Center, the, the resemblance is uncanny. It was intentional. They were basing that off the Rui, which I think is super creative. And it actually looks really, really nice. Uh, and then Zhangjiakou also has their own Olympic village, which has accommodations for 2,460 athletes and team officials. So yeah, there are three main... Uh, areas where the Olympics are being held. And to get in between these areas, China built a new 108-mile high-speed railway line connecting Beijing on one end to Zhangjiakou on the other. By car, this trip would usually take around two to three hours, but high-speed rail cuts the trip to 47 minutes. The trains run up to 217 miles per hour, and it is actually unmanned. So it speeds up and slows down at certain places by itself. However, there is a driver monitoring it at all times. So in total, the project took about four years. Um, however, construction began in 2018 and finished in 2019. So the actual construction only took one year. They approved the budget. I don't know if this is actually the amount of money they, they took, they uh, used to, to make, to construct this, but it was $9.22 billion, $9 billion uh, US dollars. Tickets range from $12 to $38 on the newest smart trains, which uh, have like 5G signals, a bunch of sensors, intelligent lighting. 
one of the stations is deep beneath the Great Wall. So they, they, they're very, very careful about excavating this because obviously if you mess up the Great Wall, that's bad. So they timed each explosion in the mountain under the Great Wall so that every, each explosion would have no more impact on the Great Wall than one step, like a person taking one step on the wall. So basically the Great Wall was not harmed during this explosions and excavations underground. And the station is way, way, way deep. It's like the deepest high-speed rail uh, station in the world. So that's one of the 10 stops on the route, but the Olympians and other people involved in the Olympics are restricted to a closed loop, uh, basically like their bubble. And so that involves um, just transportation from Beijing to the different Olympic villages uh, across the different Olympic sites. So I believe they are not allowed to take the normal trains that go to any of the other stops on the route. So for athletes and other people involved with the Olympics, so media as well, if you get the Beijing My 2022 app, you get a free ticket for the train. Uh, but if something happens with the app, like uh, there are a couple like big technical difficulties a couple couple weeks ago, I believe, you can take a taxi, but uh, the taxis are specific special taxis and they only take Visa because Visa is the official sponsor of the Olympics. Um, this is sort of hard for Chinese athletes because they usually use Alipay or WeChat. But yeah, speaking of the My2022 app, you may have heard there is a lot of controversy over this app. Basically, what this app is, is athletes, it monitors athletes' COVID health and it's meant to help trace any potential outbreaks. So basically, it monitors your health. You're supposed to report data to it, uh, how you're feeling, stuff like that. Like I mentioned, there are serious technical issues two weeks prior to the Olympics beginning. And in general, you know, if you see on the news, especially in, the, in, in where I am in the U.S., there's a bunch of stuff about poor security practices, uh, which make this health information that you input and other information easy to hack, whether it's by hackers trying to sell your data or by the Chinese government. And this, this criticism is like widespread across a bunch of media. You know, like mainstream media, uh, more conservative media in the U.S. It's pretty crazy. And it's like so focused on how bad this is in the context of it's from China. And I think uh, I think the criticism, like in some ways, you know, it is probably real. Uh, and what I mean by that is a lot of different countries, when they implement their health app, it is they implement it very quickly. You know, they need it. They need to publish the app very quickly. So it's not just China, like a bunch of other countries, like in Europe and stuff, they all have security flaws and concerns um, because they're implemented quickly. And so it's not just the Chinese thing. It's not just limited to China or the Chinese government. You know, obviously, okay, there is a concern that the government will take it, take this data. But, you know, before you report on that, it'd be nice to show us some proof. Like I was reading this article and they were saying how, you know, the Chinese government is going to take people's data just like they take everybody else's data. And then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then uh, like the FBI is telling people to bring burner phones or something there. And I think, okay, you know, wherever you go, uh, whether it's China, whether it's some other country in the world, it is probably, there's always a risk to your personal data. Okay, so yes, I understand like there is a risk in China, but there's also a risk in other places too. You know, it's like in the US, your data is being sold to 
a bunch of different businesses and corporations and advertising companies that we don't even know about. And so privacy is an issue that covers the entire world. It's not just China. And so I think a lot of this criticism, you know, it's sort of unfair criticism that is directly targeting China during the Winter Olympics that are being hosted by China. So privacy is a concern. Use a VPN. That won't solve everything. But there's only so much that somebody can do right now. And like when you when you make these criticisms, like just I think people want to see proof. They want to see what exactly is like when you say Chinese going to take this and that. Are they actually taking this or that?、Uh, and yeah. But anyways, these are criticisms that have been circling the My Twenty Twenty Two app. Be careful when you're using any app from any government.、Um, I'm pretty sure Americans don't trust our government apps as well.、Uh, but yeah, like anyways, just general information about the COVID bubble. There's a 21-day quarantine upon entering China. You have to be fully vaccinated. You have to have two negative tests in 96 hours, and you monitor your health for 14 days via the app. You have to take daily COVID tests. Olympic venues are also in the bubble. So basically, if you're an athlete, if you're a journalist, you cannot leave the bubble at all. So even in places like Zhangjiakou, all the buildings are in the bubble, which is pretty crazy because the buildings are in the bubble, but the roads connecting them are not. So if you are exiting one building, But then you're trying to walk to another building because it's within walking distance. You can't. You have to take their shuttle buses. But the buses have like a bunch of letters and bunch of numbers. There's no clear destination names, no maps. Sometimes you have to wait half an hour in the freezing cold to wait for these buses. And yeah, it's sort of weird. Just the roads connecting these buildings that are in the bubble are not in the bubble. So、uh, it's interesting. Um, and then, secondly, the volunteers、uh, I've heard, you know, by by reading some articles, are actually pretty nice and friendly. They they speak English, but sometimes they can't find the word for something, so they quickly pull out the translator app on the phone. Some of them entered the closed loop, like the bubble, in early January, but they won't be going home till April after the Paralympics and another twenty one days of quarantine. They're they're going to be there for a pretty long time. Uh, and then within the Olympic villages, I'm not sure if this is the case for every single village, but you know,、uh, I've heard that the、uh, villages are pretty nice. You know, the beds for athletes have remote control, and you can position them, the feet and the head, in like any way you want. They've got lounges with PS fives and stuff like that.、Uh, so the athletes are in general pretty pretty satisfied with their accommodations. I have heard that some rooms are like. Boiling like steaming hot, like you can't walk on the the floor barefoot. I don't know why it's so hot, but in general, I think the athletes have been pretty pretty nice with their accommodations. So yeah, I mean Beijing, like I think you've heard, is not they they don't really they they don't have their own snow, not enough to have these Winter Olympics. So it, it's like a weird place to hold the Olympics. If you look at some of the pictures they take, you see the artificial snow just covering. Like a section of the mountain, like where people are skiing or snowboarding down there, but the rest of it is all brown or green, and so the snow is just covers only a little section. How did Beijing get these Olympics then? So I think one of the biggest promises was、well, they promised to spend only one point five billion dollars on venues and then the same amount in operating expenses, which is a fraction of the cost that organizers spent for Sochi and Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. And I think the IOC really, really wanted that because Sochi and Pyeongchang ended up costing a bunch. Sochi was just pretty much a disaster, and so for China to say, "Okay, you know what? We can do it efficiently. We can do it with much, much, much less money." I think the IOC,、uh, the Olympic Committee, they liked that, 
In addition, the bidding happened in 2015 and a bunch of cities pulled out. And by the end, it was only Beijing versus Almaty, um, um, which is the former capital of Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan today is in political turmoil. So in hindsight, it was probably the better decision to choose Beijing. But, you know, so Beijing got the bid. They won the bid. But, you know, IOC and Beijing, they haven't always been on smooth terms. Like, for example, IOC wanted Beijing to pursue a similar COVID policy as Tokyo did last year. But China wanted to do like zero COVID. And then with the whole thing about like artificial snow, it, it, the sad truth and the sad reality is that pretty much all over the world, we'll need to use artificial snow for winter events because of global warming. So uh, it's just with Beijing, it's sort of an extreme circumstance because Zhangjiakou, the place where they're doing all these skiing events, has and the, these other like um, events involving snow, they uh, basically have little to no snow. And, and, the, and the locals there, they, they're not used to the, the amount of snow that you would normally get in like Norway or something like places like that have actual real snow, like in Colorado and stuff like that. And so all the snow is artificial. Uh, pretty much 100% of the snow is artificial. And so these, these artificial snows are all machine made. Um, and that's not like unique either because Pyeongchang used artificial snow as well uh, back in the 2018 Winter Olympics. But I think what is sort of different is that Beijing and Northern China in general, they have very, very little very scarce water resources. In 2017, um, based on the numbers that we have, Beijing only had 36,000 gallons of fresh water resources per resident. Zhangjiakou uh, has, has had 83,000 gallons of fresh water resources per resident. If we compare that to the United States, it has 2.3 million gallons of fresh water resources per person. And countries with less than 260,000 gallons per person are considered water scarce, water scarce. So Beijing is very, very water scarce. It has 36,000 gallons, which is only a fraction of the 260,000 gallons per person that is recommended. And so they had to build 40 miles of pipes uh, and $60 million to do that, plus build pumps to transport 1 million cubic meters of water to these Olympic locations which is about 400 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And this was just, just to start the Olympics off, not to necessarily keep it going over the next couple of weeks. Irrigation across tens of thousands of acres were turned off to conserve groundwater. Uh, they had to resettle some farmers to build the Olympic competition area. And artificial snow in general is not the most eco-friendly. I mean, winter sports in general is not the most eco-friendly, but artificial snow, they try to collect the snow afterwards to be reused. But some researchers say that up to 35% of the water is lost, either through evaporation, either by blowing the snowflakes away, or draining into the ground, which is not that bad because it becomes groundwater. But basically, you, you, you're using a lot of water, and then, and then you lose a lot of water as well. So um, this drought problem in Beijing and northern China is not a new problem. This has been here for centuries and centuries and centuries. It's just that... Um, you know, with climate change, it's getting worse. Some of the solutions that address it are not the best either uh, because they end up diverting a lot of water away from southern China and those rivers become altered. Um, and then a lot of pumps, you know, and that cost a lot of money have to be built to sanitize the water as it moves up to the north. So um, the, the water issue is definitely something that Beijing had to deal with in this Olympics and, you know, uh, Artificial snow also has its impacts on the environment, uh, you know, wherever it is used all over the world. 
I'm pretty sure if people dumped a bunch of artificial snow in LA, it would uh, have a negative impact probably as well. So that is basically an overview of the Olympics. I think, you know, we can see that it's pretty crazy. I mean, I would say the overall setup is pretty efficient. You know, they were able to repurpose uh, a bunch of the existing stadiums that they had built from 2008. The high-speed rail, the project only took four years and the construction only took one year. It is unprecedented because it is unmanned. The Great Wall Station is pretty insane. Um, and infrastructurally, I think the Beijing Olympics is is uh, pretty successful. You know, I think in, if anything, like we have to say like China is able to build the stuff they want to uh, when, they, when they want to. I don't know from a, like a short-term perspective, that's really great. Obviously, any infrastructural project, any big large-scale project, whether it's in the China or whether it's in the United States or Europe, they will have its long-term effects down the road. But at least China is showing, as it wants to show, I think, that it can build and prepare for the Olympics within a short amount of time and have it be smooth sailing. So yeah, uh, props to them for being able to build this stuff. And I think the athletes really like it as well. They're good facilities, world-class. The artificial snow is makes the surface a little bit um, harder and I think a little bit more sandy, I think. Um, but, you know, for some sports, apparently that's more ideal. So hopefully, you know, as, you, as we're watching the Winter Olympics, they'll show more of these sites and then we can see uh, what they look like on TV because we can't go there in person. Um, but yeah, so we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to talk a little bit more about the um, politics surrounding these Olympics. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to part A of this week's episode where we talked about the logistics of the Beijing Olympics. The next part is right after this, so it's the next episode in the podcast, but technically it's just part B of episode 4 where we will go more into the politics of the Olympics. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast, and I hope to see you on the next part. Later.